welcome to Beneath the Skin, the podcast about everything told through the history of tattoos. My name is Dr. Matt Lodder. I am your host for this episode. Uh, my producer, co-host and friend Thomas is away still this week. Um, he's been getting his graduation uh, finally delayed over COVID. So he's finally gone back home to Ireland to get his uh, well-deserved graduation certificate. And he's lecturing at his old university, um, teaching the young podcast producers of the future about the joys of um, of radio production. So I am once again uh, on my own. Um, I am alone today. I was thinking about what I wanted to, to talk to you guys about. We've got... Um, had we've had over nine thousand downloads of the podcast now. Please tell your friends. Please tell uh, everyone you know about the podcast. Sh- spread the word. Share the word. Make sure everybody you know knows to listen to the podcast. We we're really getting loads of great um, messages now through from people that are listening and people who've just found the show and who are catching up on old episodes. Thank you and welcome to you guys as well, new listeners. But you know, it really helps us out to spread the word to really really let people know. Um, you know, that the, the show is here and that it is interesting. I wanted to, as part of um, today, you know, I was just I was thinking about what to talk about. And one of the things I really wanted to do, perhaps, was to read um, a chapter from the book, from Painted People, um, out now in all good bookshops. <laughs> um, the, the, the impetus for the podcast was actually, you know, because the book was coming out and, and, and um, wanted to find ways to share some of the stories. I also didn't read the audiobook version of the uh, of the book. You can get that, sign up to get it onto aud- on uh, Audible or other places you get audiobooks. The actor who d- did the record is amazing, done a fantastic job. Um, but I wanted to use this moment where I have a sort of solo moment on the show to read out uh, a chapter, do a kind of reading, if you will. Hopefully it might encourage you to go and buy the book. Um, if you haven't already, you can buy it from uh, Amazon and all other usual book shops. You can also subscribe to the podcast. You can subscribe to our Patreon. Uh, if you do that at the £15 a month level for one month at least, we will send you a free copy of the book signed by myself. Now that is um, cheaper than you'll get it on Amazon and you get all of our bonus content and all of our um, restricted shows um, and you get all of the podcast episodes um, early as well if you subscribe. So a good reason to subscribe and hopefully this this will be a little taster for you to to get hold of the book if you haven't already. This is one of my favourite chapters. It's chapter 18. And it's a good indication, I think, of, of the general theory of the book because what starts off really is a bit of tattoo history, or at least what appears to be a bit of tattoo history, quickly gets us into some really interesting and strange places. And then, as I'll probably talk about as we go through, where if I divert from the text, you'll see that, you know, this is a good illustration of the fact that tattoo history can lead you into some really, really strange and unexpected areas of, of more broad historical research. We're going to get to some weird and interesting places with this story. I won't um, spoil it for anyone that hasn't yet read the book. Um, uh, we, we'll maybe come back to it at the end and, and, and talk a bit more about that. But without further ado, this is Painted People by Dr. Matt Lodder, uh, Humanity in 21 Tattoos. This is chapter 18, An Artistic Hammer and Sickle. Anita Alores, 1953. We all know that art is not the truth. Art is a lie that makes us realise the truth. 
at least a truth that is given to us to understand. Pablo Picasso, The Arts Magazine, May 1923. Unlike the other stories in this book, this one's not centred on a tattoo. Instead, this is a story about a story about a tattoo. To be even more precise, it's a conspiracy theory about a story about a tattoo. And it goes something like this. In June 1953, the Cold War was gathering pace. In the months immediately following Joseph Stalin's death, Anita Alores, the wife of an extraordinarily wealthy and influential Argentinian beef magnate, was photographed at a glamorous party in Buenos Aires, hosted by President Juan Perón. Clad in a figure-hugging Dior gown, the picture shows Mrs. Alores dancing an energetic tango with her husband, their bodies pressed passionately together. In archetypal style, each of them dramatically holds one arm aloft. His other arm clutches her tightly against him as she swishes her head from one side to another. On her back, revealed by the plunging cut of her dress, is a large tattoo depicting the crude outlines of two animalistic figures and, most shockingly of all, clearly rendered a hammer and sickle, the instantly recognisable symbol of international communism. The political fallout of this revelation, that an ardent communist sympathiser was so close to the heart of a regime friendly to the United States, was swift. The tattoo sparked a major political scandal and diplomatic incident. Perón's Secretary of State, Senor Filaz, was reported to have reacted in horror when he spotted the symbol. America's ambassador to Argentina had also been present at the banquet and had quickly sent notice back to Washington. Senator Joe McCarthy, infamous scourge of communist sympathisers in America, took to the airwaves, incensed, and ordered that a large import of Argentinian beef from Alores' husband's company immediately be cancelled. The twist in the tale is that Mrs. Alores was not, in fact, a tattooed red under the bed, but the victim of a cruel trick played by the most famous artist of the 20th century, Pablo Picasso. At a hastily organised press conference, Alores pleaded with the world's assembled press to forgive her. Far from asking to be permanently marked as a distant communist, she'd actually chosen to seek out a tattoo from Picasso on the recommendation of an influential art critic. The critic had mentioned in his weekly column in Le Figaro that the hottest clubs in Paris were full of fashionable women sporting designs tattooed on them by Picasso himself. It's fun, the article claimed, to wear a work of art by a great master artist on your shoulder or back. Picasso had taken up tattooing a few months earlier, having realised it would enable him to produce works of great artistic beauty and novelty for wealthy art collectors, which could never be stolen, as works in museums might be. Alois claimed to have paid Picasso the enormous sum of three million francs to produce a large tattoo on her back, simply hoping to appear particularly avant-garde and a la mode when she was back home in Argentina. Picasso, who joined the French Communist Party in 1944, had apparently snuck in the hammer and sickle without Alores noticing and against her will. The story was published in the Icelandic weekly newspaper um, Frielsjöd, Fjöd, sorry, uh, any Icelandic listeners, uh, The Free Nation in May 1954, almost exactly one year after the incident was said to have occurred. That month, May 54, had seen the French army humiliated by communist government troops in North Vietnam 
and American-backed forces defeating communist guerrilla rebels in the Philippines and embarking on the overthrow of democratic socialists in Guatemala, sparking a Marxist insurgency. It's a long piece, coming in at nearly a thousand words, and it presents a compelling and almost comedic tale of tense Cold War foreign relations and international trade, wrapped in a prurient and surprising tale of tattooing and high art. Tattooing is used in the narrative as a, in a way that's now familiar, to provide a contested account of its bearers' true beliefs. The mark on the skin is understood, at least at first glance, to signify some inalienable truth about the wearer's deepest ideological commitments. Yet despite being replete with detail and accompanied by a photo of the Alores' strutting their tattooed tango, the story appears to be a complete and utter fiction, though the, the article's Icelandic author claimed to have based it on a story originating from a Swedish newspaper, the source periodical named does not exist. Though there are papers called the Gothenburg Post and the Evening Paper published in Stockholm, and there is an Evening Post published in Norway, there's no paper called the Gothenburg Evening Post from where the story was said to have been lifted. The article attributes the belief that Picasso had begun to tattoo to a column in Le Figaro by Daniel Kahnweiler, Picasso's biographer. If such an article had been written, Kahnweiler would, like, would have been a likely candidate to have written it, but he did not write any articles for Le Figaro in 1953 or 1954 at all. Furthermore, the Free Nation story claims that the news of a scandal had first been broken by Paris broadsheet Francois three weeks after the event, on 20th of June 1953. No such story was published. The entire tale seems only to have made it in print in Iceland. It wasn't picked up by the press in France, the US or elsewhere. And though it has occasionally been mentioned in Scandinavian newspapers in subsequent decades, it's not been noticed, let alone verified, by any of Picasso's biographers. Most of the details of the story crumble in the face of even gentle examination. None of the central facts are verifiable, and many are certainly false. There's no mention in congressional records or in American newspapers of this dramatic press conference, nor of Joe McCarthy's beef boycott. Philaz, Perron's named Secretary of State, is a fiction and doesn't appear anywhere else in the historical record. There's no mention of the incident in Surviving Diplomatic Cables, written by Albert Neufer, the then ambassador to Argentina. And most damningly of all, Anita Alores and her unnamed husband don't seem to have actually existed. And so the story evaporates into the thin air of history. Maybe we could just leave it there. Picasso wasn't a tattoo artist. Maybe it was simply a tall tale told to amuse or bemuse the readers of a small Icelandic newspaper some 70 years ago. An absurd, fluffy concoction to pro provoke chuckles over breakfast in Reykjavik as the Cold War rumbled on in the background. Nevertheless, within the tale lurk so many details that are sufficiently close to real events that it is remarkably plausible, both to contemporaneous Icelandic audiences and to anyone encountering it now in the 21st century. And even once we've discarded every detail, one fascinating question remains. As the story wasn't true, why was it published at all? Picking at the threads of this deftly woven story reveals a great deal, I think, about the political machinations of Cold War Europe, and Picasso's imaginary tattooing career becomes a lens through which much deeper currents of mid-century ideologies are communicated. The Free Nation was not a newspaper prone to satire or comedy, and the article is not written in a tone that suggests absurd humour. 
Its editorial line was primarily anti-American and it positioned itself as the voice of principled nationalist opposition against the contentious encroachment of American influence in the country, particularly as US forces remained stationed in Reykjavik and assumed responsibility for Iceland's defence. Interestingly, though, it was also vocally anti-Soviet and harshly critical of Icelandic political parties who pledged fealty to Russian communism. In this context, a story that simultaneously makes the United States look paranoid and petty and also manages to turn ideological communism into a punchline feels editorially appropriate. Citations to familiar and influential authorities such as Francois and Le Figaro and the use of well-known names such as McCarthy, Kahnweiler and Perron anchor the story firmly in a kind of reality, right? It would have been difficult, if not impossible, for average readers to verify the minute details at the time. There is, however, much more detail in the story than one might expect of a piece intended to be an open and transparent gag. Most strikingly, there's the image. Uh, The article was indeed published alongside a photograph of a tango dancing couple. The woman, whose face is not visible, does appear to have a design drawn on her back. On close inspection, the hammer and sickle is discernible, but the expanse of her bare back is not taken up by a crude sketch scribbled on the negative by a jocular Icelandic journalist hoping to simply give a visual impression of the kind of tattoo one imagines Picasso might have done. Instead, the design is a close replica of a 1946 triptych mural by Picasso in Antibes called Satyr, Fawn and Sun Centaur with Trident. The contentious hammer and sickle, by contrast, is tucked away at the edge of the composition. It's an extraordinarily literate quotation of Picasso's work, but not quite recognisable enough to a lay audience to quickly read as a joke. It's just a little too subtle to really work as a gag image. By the 1950s, tattooing in France, as elsewhere in Western Europe, had fallen from grace amongst the upper echelons. Nevertheless, a tastefully rendered shoulder tattoo would not have been out of place in high-end Parisian circles before the Second World War. Some of those tattoos might even have been political. A wannabe new dancer in the burlesque reviews reportedly had to abandon her career plans after it proved impossible to remove a hammer and sickle she had tattooed on her left breast in 1936, following a dalliance with a communist politician. It's also true that Picasso and his circle certainly did have at least a passing interest in tattoos, even if there's no good evidence he actually performed any himself. In 1968, for example, he sketched an elaborately tattooed woman picnicking with a bearded man. Secondly, though Anita Alores appears to be an Icelandic invention, in real life Picasso was patronised by a politically influential, ideologically outrageous, artistically inclined Argentinian beef magnate and his extravagant wife. In the mid-1940s, Picasso, alongside Henri Matisse, had been commissioned by a couple called Marcello and Hortensia Acarena to produce art for their fashionable Parisian apartment. The Acarenas were major figures economically and politically in the relationship between Argentina and, um, Argentina and Europe, and persistent rumours suggest that Marcello had played a key part in diplomatic efforts involved in bringing Argentina over to the side of the Allies in the latter years of the war. The couple were famed in Paris for their ration-busting parties. Like the fictional Anita, Hortensia was a great esthete, art collector and trendsetter. Such was her influence that Eva Perron was even said to have copied Hortensia's haircut. The political details underpinning this story are also rooted in reality. 
There's a deep concern within the US security services regarding Picasso's political sympathies. He was perhaps the most internationally famous member of the French Communist Party and had generously donated to them for more than a decade by the time the story was published. The idea of Picasso inserting communist propaganda into his art, even when carried out on skin, is certainly plausible, given that he'd painted a controversial portrait of Joseph Stalin in March 1953, shortly before Senorita Alores was supposedly tattooed. Picasso's also reported to have marked 1953 as the moment in which he became disillusioned with politics in the wake of criticism he, he received for his depiction of Stalin. Though he painted a door for the Acarenia's apartment, Picasso openly despised them, even while quaffing their champagne. Far from being crypto-communists, Marcelo apparently kept a portrait of Adolf Hitler in his library and admiringly brought out his copy of Mein Kampf at dinner. In the context of that detail specifically, which seems not to have been mentioned prominently in the Icelandic press, the idea of Picasso taking out ideological revenge on his fascist sympathising patrons is compelling. And the spectre of communist incursion into the Argentinian government, which plays a role in the narrative thrust of the story, is also visible in the historical record. The commitment of President Perón and supporters to the capitalist cause was certainly a subject of great anxiety in America throughout 1953 and 54, both publicly and privately. After secret meetings with Perón, American ambassadors did frequently report their concerns about named communist sympathisers within the Argentinian government back to President Eisenhower, and did genuinely fear that so-called crypto-communists posed a particularly grave threat to the stability of US-Argentine relations. The Argentinian press was nowhere near as close to the United States' ideological position as Perón's government was, and newspapers frequently ran articles sympathetic to Soviet communism despite censorship by Perón and private outrage by Ambassador Neufer and Eisenhower Secretary of State John Foster Dulles. Hey, are you enjoying the show? If you really like Beneath the Skin and you want to help support us, you can do so on Patreon. For little as five quid a month, you can help make this show possible, help us buy research materials. So if you like the show and you want to support us, consider kicking us a few quid a month and you'll get everything from bonus episodes to Q&As and you can even vote on what tattoo I'll get when we reach a certain subscriber count. Matt, have you got anything to say? You should really definitely uh, fund the Patreon because tattoo history is massive, right? Deep, wide, complicated. We're covering some big hit topics on the main feed, but on the Patreon subscriber-only feed, we'll be getting into some really more interesting niche deep topics you don't want to miss out on and honestly the chance to kind of decide what thomas gets on his body is probably just a once in a lifetime opportunity subscribe chuck us a few quid don't miss out on the chance to ruin thomas's body forever everyone knows that tattoo aftercare is one of the most important steps in getting a new tattoo we all want our fresh new tattoos to heal as easily and hassle-free as possible so we can show them off to the world. That's why Saniderm's here to help. Driven by science and innovation, Saniderm products have been thoroughly tested and used by doctors and tattoo artists alike for over 10 years. Saniderm brings cutting-edge technology to make your tattoo healing process a breeze. No more messing around with cleaning and plastic every few hours with Saniderm's amazing range of aftercare products. I personally have used Saniderm to heal my tattoos in the past, and they made what used to be a daily process of setting reminders on my phone to clean and rewrap my tattoo into a one-step process. 
Their medical grade products include aftercare balms, soaps, and my favourite, their second skin aftercare bandages. Sanoderm's tattoo bandages are designed to be waterproof, breathable, and keep your new tattoo protected from whatever the elements can throw at it so you can get on with your day worry-free and confident your new tattoo will look vibrant and will heal faster. Plus, their products are all natural and ethically sourced, so you can take comfort in knowing that you're healing your tattoos with nature's finest ingredients. So next time you're in an artist's chair, why not try Sanoderm, healing your tattoos the modern way so you can get on with your day. Check out the link in the description of this episode for discounts on a range of Sanoderm products or for more information. At the level of macro politics, the story also encapsulates much of the global mood of the period. Early in May 1954, the Soviet Union had invited Latin American envoys to Moscow to discuss increasing trade and had explicitly signed a new trade deal with Argentina, which hinned on the importation of Argentine beef into Russia. The previous year, Peron's policies had dramatically reduced the global supply of Argentinian beef and the amount exported into the United States. And just a week after the Free Nation published their story about Picasso's tattooing, the New York Times splashed a report about the Soviet Union's cultural Cold War across Europe and Latin America, where they sponsored chess tournaments, ballets, scientific collaborations and sporting tournaments in countries including both Iceland and Argentina. So perhaps this really is just a comedic satire of the machinations of international agricultural trade. But if this is all simply a politically inflected joke by someone at the Free Nation or by someone providing information to them, It's a remarkably subtle one, which weaves the esoteric details of global beef trade, the Parisian art scene, the reputations of Francophile Argentinian art collectors, and the political machinations of the Peron government into a vivid tale of Picasso working as a tattooer. My best guess as to the genesis of this absurd but oddly plausible story is that it's the product of a propaganda campaign, either by the editorial team at Free Nation or by security forces in the United States. Every single detail, though three of them are true, resonates with political and ideological anxieties of the precise moment of the story's publication. Every single detail is just about close enough to real events, even where those events are unlikely to have been uppermost in Icelandic readers' minds at the time. And declassified archival material from the American intelligence and diplomatic services shed light on one possible explanation. Perron had told Ambassador Neufer in February 1953 he had evidence of a CIA-backed propaganda campaign working to undermine him elsewhere in Latin America. CIA documents from the period show there was genuine fear in Washington that Icelandic communists would capitalise on widespread anti-American sentiment to push the country leftwards. In May 1954, the Operations Coordinating Board, which led the United States' covert operations under Eisenhower, was briefing on euphemistically titled cultural activities to be undertaken in Iceland. The OCB's executive officer, Elmer Starts, noted in a secret memo that increased communist activities and problems related to the American military programme in Iceland led the OCB to foster renewed emphasis on increasing American prestige in Iceland. The OCB undertook the development of a coordinated action programme to accomplish political effects and help improve the climate of opinion. In the same month, the CIA also compiled an extensive secret report on how best to encourage Icelanders to read US-friendly literature and not communist texts in translation. And just a week before the story in Free Nation was published, the CIA penned a secret cable exclaiming that ongoing negotiations about the presence of American troops in Reykjavik could plausibly and imminently lead to the fall of the US-friendly government there. And so... 
If taken as fact, some readers of the story might have concluded on the basis of Senorita and Loris's implausible denials that tales of communist sympathisers in the halls of the Argentinian government were as well-founded as President Eisenhower feared. Even as it pokes fun at the American overreaction, on this reading, the story does still serve an American dominant narrative about covert communist infiltration within governments allied to the West, and highlights the cultural threat posed by artists who were sympathetic to Soviet communism. And as the CIA understood in July 1954, Iceland, like Argentina, was heavily reliant on foreign exports, with huge amounts of fish being sold to both the US and the USSR. In that context, the fabricated retaliation taken by the US against Argentina in response to communist tendencies in government could serve as a warning to any Icelanders tempted by communism. This is a conspiracy theory, of course. There's no direct evidence that this tale was the result of an active propaganda operation. There are alternative explanations, and it's also possible, I suppose, to read the story as one hostile to the US, given it hinges on a historical overreaction by Joe McCarthy. The story was published during the Army McCarthy hearings, which were being broadcast on US television, revealing the heights of his zealotry to an increasingly sceptical public. Nevertheless, the fact that this incredibly strange, inscrutably strange tattoo story appeared in the middle of a diplomatic crisis during an active propaganda campaign does further reveal how embedded tattoo history is with the wider tribulations of human lives. The Icelandic article has a coda. It tells another story, that of Iris Joan Hunter. Hunter was a wealthy art collector who'd fallen on hard times, consumed by a debilitating and ruinous cocaine addiction. After her premature death, there was nothing left for her heirs to sell. On her body, though, was a tattoo by Picasso, her last remaining asset. Her heirs tried to broker the sale of the tattoo to Alfred Barr, director of the Museum of Modern Art, but were prevented from doing so by angry government officials and interfering religious clerics. Word got back to Picasso, and he was so incensed that for the next several weeks, he did nothing but feverishly tattoo women. Prompted by Kahnweiler, so the story goes, Picasso decided to organise a public art show of his works, his tattoo works. For two nights a week, these living canvases stood behind a cardboard wall, anonymous and invisible to gallery goers, save for their tattooed extremities pushed through strategically placed holes. These women were, like a Lores and Hunter, well-bred society women, and a Paris newspaper began to offer prizes to any of their readers who could identify them. The sweepstake motivated visitors to take knitting needles to the exhibition with which to poke the models, hoping to somehow identify them from their cries, and scissors with which to enlarge the holes to allow more of a peek at just who was lurking just out of sight. Which famous ladies were secretly hiding such exquisite works of art under their clothing? Like the rest of the story, neither Joan uh, Iris Joan Hunter's death, MoMA's attempted acquisition of her tattoo, nor the riotous live exhibition in Paris have any basis in fact. The story of Hunter's tattoo being sold to a museum mirrors the plot of Roald Dahl's macabre story um, Skin, which had been published two years earlier. Listen to a, our Halloween episode for me reading that short story Skin, and also a story uh, called The Background by uh, Saki, an article called Saki, who, which also talks about government, interfacial, government interference in an art tattoo. Um, 
And in that tale, in Skin, um, another real-life Parisian artist, Chime Soutine, is said to have tattooed a masterpiece on the back of a doomed collector who was so down on his luck that he sought to sell it to wealthy collectors. The story of Picasso's Paris exhibition is simply a vivid new twist on a century-old tabloid tradition of telling titillating, though often unverifiable or outright false rumours about which celebrities sported which tattoos under their clothes. And what ties these final stories together with Alores's is an idea that art is a direct communication of ideas. In these marks, ideas become material. But rather than simply reading tattoos as physical representations of their owner's deepest thoughts, all three stories actually describe how tattooing renders visible the relationship between the customer, the artist, and the ideological contexts in which the tattoo is produced. For Iris Joan Hunter and the Parisian fashionistas, ascribing their tattoos to Picasso allows us to understand that tattoos are in many ways just like other art forms. Their meanings come, at least in part, from the artist making them, not simply from the client's own desires. And as for our fictional crypto-communist heroine, Anita Alores, as the client, she has no ideological input into the tattoo's meaning whatsoever. Instead, the tattoo on her body is indicative of her artist's deeply held convictions, not her own. In this bizarre article, amongst the weeds of its inscrutable origin story, is once again the idea that though we might always want to ask a tattooed person what their tattoo means, the answer will always be partial. Context and the intentions of the tattooer will always complicate any ability to understand a tattoo as a piece of straightforward communication. So that's that chapter, um, a kind of whistle-stop tour through this weird little article that I found um, or uh, in the Icelandic press. But it, I think it's such an in- indicative example of like, you know, what the book's doing because I never expected when I was doing my uh, tattoo history book to be writing about the history of the beef trade in Argentina, right? Um, or about what the CIA were up to in Iceland. But like, here's where tattoo history can get us, right? And and the things that so fascinate people about tattoos, both for good and for ill, you know, what they tell us about people's beliefs. We've talked about that on in quite a few previous episodes their indelibility, their status as art, um, their, 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 the fact they can't be removed. Um, all of these things, you know, which again, we've talked about uh, several times in, in lots of different contexts, they lend themselves to stories like this and, and, and they lend themselves to allowing tattoo history to intersect in broader history, right? Like this, this chapter came about and I'll tell this story, I suppose, because I got an email from a colleague who's a historian um, of tattooing in, in Scandinavia. And he's writing a book um, on, we'll get him on, I suppose, soon, because the book's out soon, on the history of tattooing in Scandinavia. And he said to me, hey, t- Picasso's tattooed, isn't he? Or was a tattooer? And I said, I don't think so. Where'd you get that from? And he told me that it was in a Swedish newspaper or actually in a book um, published in Swedish. And then in that book, the source of it is this Icelandic newspaper. And then I began looking for more of a story. And like I said, um, as best I can tell, it's been mentioned a couple of times in Swedish newspapers, although not the ones, um, you know, it's in the 80s and 90s, but not the one that was cited. And we traced it back to this, yeah, this particular story from the Icelandic press. And, you know, it seemed like a weird little 
story. And it's interesting to me as a historian where these myths and misconceptions come from. A lot of my work is trying to figure out you know, what we know about tattoo history and how much of it is verifiable if we go back to primary sources. So much of my work over the last, you know, decade or more of my life has been that, starting with a story and seeing how much of it we can stand up. But this story was weird. And in 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 trying to um stand it up, in trying to make sense of this story, in trying to figure out where it had come from and how much of it was true. The lesson as I found, you know, this Alores person doesn't exist and the, the, the mentions in the Swedish papers weren't real and the, the, the uh, particular, um, you know, key players were, were fictional and, and, and the, the mentions in the American newspapers didn't happen. And I was like, hey, well, that's weird. So what's going on? And of course, yeah, the context is this Cold War context, this context of of the Cold War. And, you know, I ended up first obviously trying to find out who these whether this Alores person was real and that led me into learning about what was happening with the beef trade a key kind of part of the economic politics of that period of of of, of history um there were boycotts there were concerns they weren't anything to do with tattooing but you know they were to do with with crypto communists and then that led me to these CIA files and everything else so from this weird little story about a tattoo I'm I'm, I'm emailing amazing professors at the um, University of Iceland who helped me understand a bit more of this context. And I'm emailing the one guy in the world that's an expert in the history of the Argentinian beef trade. And I'm reading journal articles um, from the 60s about the economic policies of the Peron government. And and I'm finding these declassified CIA archives. Um, you know, I also publish in the book, by the way, from the CIA archives, um, some images of some North Korean tattooing from the 1950s, which were also in those CIA archives. But the joy of it, you know, the joy of it for me was putting all those together and and, and going, look, and I love a conspiracy theory as much as anyone else, you know, um, trying to make sense of this absolutely weird story, which also nicely happens to be art historical, right? Um, you know, it's a story about Picasso and about art um, and art collecting and, and MoMA as much as it is about about tattooing as well. So it was this perfect encapsulation of, of everything that I want to do summed up in a story that is nonsense, <laughs> you know. But even the tattoo bullshit, right, even the bullshit that there's so much of in the history of tattooing and so much tall tales, both told by tattooers or told by journalists or, 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 or whatever, um, even in the bullshit, there are these really interesting kernels of truth and... and, 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 and um, interesting stories in which we can follow to some really interesting places. And I was chatting to a friend earlier on uh, today who was interviewing me for, for something. And I, I was mentioning that this chapter for that same reason in that so this is sort of how my brain works, right? One of the reviews of the book, which is very positive, did also call it a bit haphazard because it does go to some weird places, but it is. And this is, you know, where my brain goes from a moment of tattoo history and where my research and thinking, oh, where, where, where can I look for information about this? Where, where it ends up going? And I hope more than anything else, you know, anyone listening to this podcast or who's reading the book, whether you're into tattooing or not, um, I guess if you're listening to this podcast, you are, but that you'll use that interest and understand not just what learning about tattoo history can teach you about tattoo history, but what it can teach you about history, history. And where, I guess, on a more broad level, like where following your your interests and asking questions and not giving up until you find answers and 
making use of the resources available to you to, to dig into some weird corners and not being afraid to, you know, spend days and days and days being frustrated, not finding what you're looking for and figuring out what not finding what you're looking for can tell you as much as when finding what you're looking for does. You know, I didn't find anything out about Anita Alores or Picasso tattooing, but the not finding was almost as interesting as as maybe what I could have found if the story was true. Um, so yeah, I think people have been asking me, you know, what's my favourite chapter in the book? And I, I love all of them. But this one, probably above all else, is such an encapsulation of everything I think the book's about and everything my career's about. Um, and it was such a kind of joy to research because it's so weird and so obscure. And the, the, the trails from that weird little story of was Picasso a tattooer, you know, getting us to all those weird places via art history, via Cold War history, via political history, via histories of fascism and communism, via, you know, weird, um, you know, partisan Icelandic publishing, via Chime Soutine and the skin story, which I wrote about in my PhD thesis. All of these things, um, you know, uh, come together in this chapter and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of it. Uh, because of that. And I hope those of you that haven't picked up the book will, will pick up the book um, because, you know, there's a lot more of this kind of thing in it, I suppose. Um, so look, you know, sometimes on these episodes go on for two hours when Tom and I are ranting about something uh, or, or, or I'm shouting about Inkmaster. This is going to be a shorter episode. Uh, I've only been recording for just over half an hour here. Um, so it's going to be a shorter episode than, than normal, but uh, I hope that nevertheless you found it interesting and, and inspiring. And um, I hope, you know, I hope that, that, again, if you haven't bought the book, this will inspire you to buy it. Or, or if you have, it will help you understand the context in which that chapter was written and, and maybe some of the some of the kind of underlying context to it, which aren't in the text itself. Um, if anyone wants to learn more about all this stuff, the book also has footnotes so you can dig into um, all the sources that I used, all the CIA documents, all the really interesting bits of writing about Picasso and all the things about Parisian tattooing in the post-war period. All of that stuff is is, is linked in the footnotes to the book which or the endnotes to the book, which will help you go and check my sources and, and see where I got this information and see if you think it also stands up. Um and yeah, if, if you find any more, uh, if anyone does have any more information or, or stumbles across any detail on this that I've missed on this or any other thing in the book, please let me know. Um, I'm findable on the internet, Matt Lodder, uh, uh, on Twitter, on Instagram. You can email me. Uh, you can send me a smoke signal. You can shout, whistle, holler or curse and I will um, come running. Um, so thank you again for listening. Thank you to Sanaderm for sponsoring the show. Thank you, Tom, for editing this, even um, where he's not able to actually be on the recording. Normal service will be resumed shortly. We've got some really exciting uh, guests coming up uh, on the show. Please, as I said at the beginning, share the show with your friends. Tell everyone, um, we, we're up to nearly 10,000 downloads of the show, which is just so humbling and touching. And um, we're so grateful. As I've said many times before, if I wasn't talking to people about what I did, um, it would be less a job and more of a mania. So thank you for listening. Thank you for being interested. Um, I love you all. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.